Section 16 The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Sinner Written by himself by James Ogg This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. But the most singular instance of this wonderful man's power over my mind was that he had as complete influence over me by night as by day. All my dreams corresponded exactly with his suggestions. And when he was absent from me, still his arguments sunk deeper in my heart than even when he was present. I dreamed that night of a great triumph obtained, and though the whole scene was but dimly and confusedly defined in my vision, yet the overflow and death of Mr. Blanchard was the first step by which I attained the eminent station I occupied. Thus, by dreaming of the event by night, and discoursing of it by day, it soon became so familiar to my mind that I almost conceived it as done. It was resolved on, which was the first and greatest victory gained, for there was no difficulty in finding opportunities and now of cutting off a man who, every good day, was to be found walking by himself in private grounds. I went and heard him preach for two days, and in fact I held his tenets scarcely short of blasphemy. They were such as I had never heard before, and his congregation, which was numerous, were turning up their ears and drinking in his doctrines with the utmost delight. For, oh, they suited their carnal natures and self-sufficiency to a hair. He was actually holding it forth, as a fact, that it was every man's own blame if he was not saved. What horrible misconstruction! And then he was alleging, and trying to prove from nature and reason, that no man ever was guilty of a sinful action who might not have declined it, had he so chosen. Wretched controvertist, thought I to myself in a hundred times. Shall not the sword of the Lord be moved from its place of peace for such presumptuous, absurd testimonies as these? When I began to tell the prince about these false doctrines, to my astonishment I found that he had been in the church himself and had every argument that the old divine had used verbatim. And he remarked on them with great concern that these were not the tenets that corresponded with his views in society, and that he had agents in every city and every land exerting their powers to put them down. I asked with great simplicity, are all your subjects Christians, Prince? All my European subjects are, or deem themselves so, returned he. 
and they are the most faithful and true subjects I have. Who could doubt, after this, that he was the Tsar of Russia? I have nevertheless had reasons to doubt of his identity since that period, and which of my conjectures is right I believe the God of Heaven only knows, for I do not. I shall go on to write such things as I remember, and if anyone shall ever take the trouble to read over these confessions, such a one will judge for himself. It will be observed that, since ever I fell in with this extraordinary person, I have written about him only, and I must continue to do so to the end of this memoir, as I have performed no great or interesting action in which he had not a principal share. He came to me one day and said, we must not linger thus in executing what we have resolved on. We have much before our hands to perform for the benefit of mankind, both civil as well as religious. Let us do what we have to do here, and then we must wend our way to other cities and perhaps to other countries. Mr. Blanchard, is to hold forth in the high church of Paisley on Sunday next, on some particularly great occasion. This must be defeated. He must not go there. As he will be busy arranging his discourses, we may expect him to be walking by himself in Finiston Dell the greater part of Friday and Saturday. Let us go and cut him off. What is the life of a man more than the life of a lamb, or any guiltless animal? It is not half so much, especially when we consider the immensity of the mischief this old fellow is working among our fellow creatures. Can there be any doubt that it is the duty of one consecrated to God to cut off such a mildew? I fear me, great sovereign, said I, that your ideas of retribution are too sanguine and too arbitrary for the laws of this country. I dispute not that your motives are great and high, but have you debated the consequences and settled the result? I have, returned he, and hold myself amendable for the action to the laws of God and of equity. As to the enactments of men, I despise them. Fain would I see the weapon of the Lord of hosts begin the work of vengeance that awaits it to do. I could not help thinking that I perceived a little derision of countenance on his face as he said this. Nevertheless, I sunk dumb before such a man, aroused myself to the task, seeing he would not have it deferred. I approved of it in theory, but my spirit stood aloof from the practice. I saw and was convinced that the elect of God would be happier and purer were the wicked and unbelievers all cut off from troubling and misleading them. But if it had not been the instigations of this illustrious stranger, 
I should never have presumed to begin so great a work myself. Yet, though he often aroused my zeal to the highest pitch, still my heart at times shrunk from the shedding of life-blood, and it was only at the earnest and unceasing instigations of my enlightened and voluntary patron that I at length put my hand to the conclusive work. After I said all that I could say, and all I had been overborne, I remember my actions and words as well as it had been yesterday. I turned round hesitatingly, and looked up to heaven for direction. But there was a dimness come over my eyes that I could not see. The appearance was as if there had been a veil drawn over me, so nigh that I put up my hand to feel it. And then Gil Martin, as this great sovereign was pleased to have himself called, frowned and asked me what I was grasping at. I knew not what to say, but answered with fear and shame. I have no weapons, not one. No, I wear any are to be found. The God whom thou servest will provide these, said he, if thou provest worthy of the trust committed to thee. I looked again up into the cloudy veil that covered us, and thought I beheld golden weapons of every description let down in it, but all with their points towards me. I kneeled, and was going to stretch out my hand to take one, when my patron seized me, as I thought, by the clothes, and dragged me away with as much ease as I had been a lamb, saying, with a joyful and elevated voice, Come, my friend, let us depart. Thou art dreaming, thou art dreaming. Rouse up all the energies of thy exalted mind, for thou art an highly favored one, and doubt thou not that he whom thou servest will be ever at thy right and left hand to direct and assist thee. These words, but particularly the vision I had seen of the golden weapons descending out of heaven, inflamed my zeal to that height that I was as one beside himself, which my parents perceived that night, and made some motions towards confining me to my room. I joined in the family prayers, and then I afterwards sung a psalm and prayed by myself. And I had good reasons for believing that the small oblation of praise and prayer was not turned to sin. But there are strange things and unaccountable agencies in nature. He only who dwells between the cherubim can unriddle them, and to him the honor must redound forever. Amen. I felt greatly strengthened and encouraged that night, and the next morning I ran to meet my companion, out of whose eye I had now no life. He rejoiced at seeing me so forward in the great work of reformation by blood, and said many things to raise my hopes of future fame and glory. And then, producing two pistols of pure beaten gold, he held them out and proffered me the choice of one, saying, 
See what thy master hath provided thee? I took one of them eagerly, for I perceived at once that they were two of the very weapons that were let down from heaven in the cloudy veil, the dim tapestry of the firmament. And I said to myself, Surely this is the will of the Lord. The little splendid and enchanting piece was so perfect, so complete, and so ready for executing the will of the donor, that I now longed to use it in his service. I loaded it with my own hand, as Gil Martin did the other, and we took our stations behind a bush of hathorn and bramble on the verge of the wood, and almost close to the walk. My patron was so acute in all his calculations that he never mistook an event. We had not taken our stand above a minute and a half till old Mr. Blanchard appeared, coming slowly on the path. When we saw this, we cowered down and leaned each of us a knee upon the ground, pointing the pistols through the bush, with an aim so steady that it was impossible to miss our victim. He came deliberately on, pausing at times so long that we dreaded he was going to turn. Gil Martin dreaded it, and I said I did, but wished in my heart that he might. He, however, came onward, and I will never forget the manner in which he came. No, I don't believe I ever can forget it, either in the narrow bounds of time or the ages of eternity. He was a broadly, ill-shaped man, of a rude exterior, and a little bent with age. His hands were clasped behind his back and below his coat, and he walked with a slow swinging air that was very peculiar. When he paused and looked abroad on nature, the act was highly impressive. He seemed conscious of being all alone and conversant only with God and the elements of his creation. Never was there such a picture of human inadvertency. A man approaching step by step to the one that was to hurl him out of one existence into another with as much ease and indifference as the ox goeth to the stall. Hideous vision! Wilt thou not be gone from my mental sight? If not, let me bear with thee as I can. When he came straight opposite to the muzzles of our pieces, Gil Martin called out, Hey! with a short, quick sound. The old man, without starting, turned his face and breast towards us and looked into the wood, but looked over our heads. Now, whispered my companion, and fired. But my hand refused the office, for I was not at that moment sure about becoming an assassin in the cause of Christ and his church. I thought I heard a sweet voice behind me, whispering to me to beware, and I was going to look around when my companion exclaimed, 
Coward! We are ruined! I had no time for an alternative. Gil Martin's ball had not taken effect, which was altogether wonderful, as the old man's breast was within a few yards of him. Hilloa! cried Blanchard. What was that for, you dog? And with that he came forward to look over the bush. I hesitated, as I said, and attempted to look behind me, but there was no time. The next step discovered two assassins lying in covert, waiting for blood. Coward! We are ruined! cried my indignant friend. And that moment my peace was discharged. The effect was as might have been expected. The old man first stumbled to one side, and then fell on his back. We kept our places, and I perceived my companion's eyes gleaming with an unnatural joy. The wounded man raised himself from the bank to a sitting posture, and I beheld his eyes swimming. He, however, appeared sensible, for we heard him saying in a low and rattling voice, Alas! Alas! Whom have I offended, that they should have been driven to an act like this? Come forth and show yourselves, that I may either forgive you before I die, or curse you in the name of the Lord. He then fell a-groping with both hands on the ground, as if feeling for something he had lost manifestly in the agonies of death. With a solemn and interrupted prayer for forgiveness, he breathed his last. I had become rigid as a statue, whereas my associate appeared to be elevated above measure. Arise, thou faint-hearted one, and let us be going, said he. Thou hast done well for once, but wherefore hesitate in such a cause? This is but a small beginning of so great a work as that of purging the Christian world. But the first victim is a worthy one, and more of such lights must be extinguished immediately. We touched not our victim nor anything pertaining to him, for fear of staining our hands with his blood. And the firing having brought three men within view, who were hasting towards the spot, my undaunted companion took both the pistols and went forward as with intent to meet them, bidding me shift for myself. I ran off in a contrary direction till I came to the foot of the pyramid psyche, and then, running up the hollow of that, I appeared on the top of the bank as if I had been another man brought in view by hearing the shots in such a place. I had a full view of a part of what passed, though not of all. I saw my companion going straight to meet the men, apparently with a pistol in every hand, 
waving in a careless manner. They seemed not quite clear of meeting with him, and so he went straight on and passed between them. They looked after him and came onwards, but when they came to the old man lying stretched in his blood, then they turned and pursued my companion, though not so quickly as they might have done, and I understand that from the first they saw no more of him. Great was the confusion that day in Glasgow. The most popular of all their preachers of morality was what they called murdered in cold blood, and a strict and extensive search was made for the assassin. Neither of the accomplices was found, however, that is certain, nor was either of them so much as suspected. But another man was apprehended under circumstances that warranted suspicion. This was one of the things that I witnessed in my life, which I never understood, and it was surely one of my patron's most dexterous tricks. For I must still say, what I have thought from the beginning, that like him there never was a man created. The young man who was taken up was a preacher, and it was proved that he had purchased firearms in town and gone out with them that morning. But the far greatest mystery of the whole was that two of the men, out of three who met my companion, swore that that unfortunate preacher was the man whom they met with a pistol in each hand, fresh from the death of the old divine. The poor fellow made a confused speech himself, which there is not the least doubt was quite true. But it was laughed to scorn, and an expression of horror ran through both the hearers and jury. I heard the whole trial, and so did Gil Martin, but we left the journeyman preacher to his fate, and from that time forth I have had no faith in the justice of criminal trials. If once a man is prejudiced on one side, he will swear anything in support of such prejudice. I tried to expostulate with my mysterious friend on the horrid injustice of suffering this young man to die for our act. But the prince exalted in it more than the other, and said the latter was the most dangerous man of the two. End of section 16